In a technology and social media driven world, we all seem to be increasingly looking at everything through a global lens. We are at a point now where creators and collectives are increasingly focusing on bringing up and amplifying hyper-local conversations, issues, and movements. Sea Black Women is a Bay Area collective of artists and activists, curators and writers, raised on Black feminist theory. Through art and theory, Sea Black Women are telling their own stories, as well as their community stories, in order to recognize and affirm the beauty, diversity, and complexity of Black women and their aesthetic traditions. See Black Women, hear Black women, trust Black women, love Black women, protect Black women, pay Black women. So tell me about the collective of Sea Black Women. How did it get started? How was it built? Um, you know, the process of all of it. Basically it started with Angela and I's personal relationship and, and building out a way for us to see each other, learn each other, understand each other. And um, I had came to Angela after uttering those words on a panel about a project where we could work on the campaign around how the San Francisco Arts Commission treated artist Lava Tama at the time. So it started out not as a collective, maybe not even actually a collective, but a project and a movement. Yeah, it, it began within the context of our relationship and, you know, really thinking about how Black women see and hear and understand each other. I had been a member on the selection panel for submissions for the Maya Angelou monument that Lava Thomas was selected for. And then after the Visual Arts Commission dismissed our nomination, the community of Black women and, and beyond really came together to understand, you know, how selection panels function, what the process was and you know what it meant for the visual arts commission to dismiss our nomination and really kind of uphold a particular narrative around who was going to you know represent dr maya angelo for this monument there was a, a standing room only panel discussion one night and part of the, the closing of the panel as we were all, you know, kind of saying our final words. I said some, some words, what became the manifesto for Sea Black Women. And that kind of, you know, was a moment to launch a particular idea that really, you know, tapped into a sort of collective recognition of how uh, Black women are so often invisibilized and undermined and not recognized uh, for our work and for our contributions. It was actually at the D. Young Museum at the Soul of a Nation opening. It was the first time that I was introduced to Lava Thomas by Angela. And um, I talked to her about wanting to help out about what was done. I thought it was an atrocity. Even, even though like the, yes, this manifesto was spoken at this time at the standing place, I think for black women just in general and how we are unrecognized and invisibility, I think is something that's really important. That is like, you're, you're thinking about it. If you're a black woman, you're experiencing it. If you're a black woman, 
as an artist like Lava Thomas is what Angela witnessed being on the panel, but also in other areas, in other workplaces, right? In your neighborhood. I mean, look at all these Black women being shot. Look at Micaiah Bryant just murdered, right? Look at the hyper visibility of her skin as a Black girl. That is this excuse that people are allowed to treat Black women violently. And so whether it is being murdered by police or the San Francisco Arts Commission revoking a commission, it is all these things that Black women experience at a rate phenomenally higher than any other race or gender. And so it's this idea of we are not free until Black women are free. So well, yes, you know, there was an approach to Lava Thomas in 2019, full circle at the Beyond. You know, there was so much energy. It was the opening night. You know, it was an opportunity to see the Black community in general, you know, show up for that event. And, you know, it, it really speaks to what happens when, you know, we're able to see ourselves within museums and within institutions that, you know, we show up for each other. So that that was a really beautiful moment. It was one of those nights where, you know, all, all the luminaries were out. Yeah, you know, part of that, because that was in October, and then by, I think it was January, they announced the second RFQ. So the, you know, really what was happening was that there was this attempt to sweep the 2019 RFQ under the rug and to just move forward. And we decided at that moment that we couldn't allow that to happen. And, you know, at that point, See Black Women was really just T and I, and, you know, we kind of informally launched a boycott against the San Francisco Arts Commission, you know, primarily through Instagram. And that was sort of the beginning of the, what became the bigger campaign, you know, after calls for transparency and for conversation and dialogue so that we could understand what they were actually thinking and, you know, wanting also to be heard, right? And there were a lot of questions in terms of what had actually happened. And, you know, we weren't able to, to have any conversation with them. They weren't open to having any conversation with us. So that was also, you know, part of what propelled See Black Women and, you know, our really organizing and rallying the community from the Bay Area and beyond, but that was really the beginning of it was that, you know, we, we weren't going to stand for that because, you know, in this particular situation, it was Lava Thomas and this monument for Dr. Maya Angelou, but, you know, it could have been any one of us. And so, you know, we were really thinking about you know, if it was me or if it was T or if this was happening to any, you know, one of the incredible artists around the Bay Area, you know, we would want the community to to show up. And so we kind of took it upon ourselves to, you know, to be that community to support Lava in, you know, gaining clarity and actually really understanding what was happening. It starts at home. You see things that you experience happen to you. And something that I always learned and I stick to is that you start something locally and then hopefully it'll spread globally, which I think that this has. So stand up for what's right, where you are, where you can do something, and then you start a movement that way. Absolutely. I mean, that's what's so powerful. I didn't realize it was the two of you really kind of driving this force because you're powerful. I mean, it felt like a big protest. <laughs> so, I mean, amazing that it was started by the two of you with power and integrity 
Um, and, and I think you're right. I mean, these situations must be happening all the time if they so easily, so cavalier could have done that to lava. Um, so I think by forcing these conversations, you've changed culture because they're now thinking about their accountability, their integrity. I mean, this is such a game changer in terms of these institutions with power and privilege and how they connect and how they interact with artists. Um, and, and you did that. So thank you. Well, we did that. And also the people here in, in Oakland and the Bay Area did that because another thing I learned from my parents and reading and organizing is that you want the things that you do to spread to other people. You want people to feel like this is theirs. You want them to feel like this is their language. I don't think it is just us. I feel that it is everyone who feels empowered and that's always the hope. A hundred percent. And it's grown. I mean, you've proven that that's true. So where is the collective now? Who are the members? And because um, I know it's powerful and it's large. Angela and I brought on Dana King and Jamani Montague as co-founders. And we don't necessarily have members at the moment because we're still figuring out the structural foundational framework. Whoever wants to be a part of C Black Women should feel empowered to be a part, to take up, open, like start a chapter, but it's something that we're working on. I couldn't love it more. I mean, I think it's so important and so powerful, you know, because it's putting it on the ground, power to the people, you know, these situations come up, who is supporting these artists? Who is, you know, fighting for the rights of artists? And it's you. So thank you. And it's a larger collective as well, but it's so important. That was really, you know, the vision right from the beginning. And I have to give T credit for the idea that, you know, that we could actually build a movement, uh, you know, and build something that was about uplifting Black women, about seeing Black women something that was sustainable and growable, right? That it was never really just about, you know, what we were doing with this initial campaign, but there was always this kind of bigger vision from the beginning. Um, and, you know, I mean, at that point, you know, when T came to me with the idea of starting a campaign to support Lava, I mean, I was already exhausted. So, uh, you know, to me, and I remember exactly when, when she came to me with this idea, I was like, that sounds like a lot of work, you know, like that's where I was coming from was, yeah, it's a great idea. And how are we going to do that? You know, slowly kind of inch by inch, it started to grow and then it really just took off. And there were a few, you know, events that we did. I had some artist talks, uh, Lava had an artist talk, you know, in early 2020. And then in February of 2020, we did, we kind of had a big launch at the Black Joy Parade um, in downtown in Oakland and that was a really beautiful moment where we really got the word out uh, about what had happened and you know what we were proposing what we were trying to do um, so that was that was a big exciting moment to really generate you know com community-wide education and and understanding and but that was kind of the spark and you know the manifesto I think really caught on with people in terms of, you know, what we were asking folks to do that began with seeing us, right? See, seeing us, hearing us, trusting us, loving us, protecting us, paying us, you know? So it was really about then lifting up these values that, uh, you know, went beyond. I think that was really the moment when C Black Women became, you know, this sort of larger collective group that, you know, we had started with this campaign, but then it just kind of grew and it, it, uh, it took off from there.
I love you both so much because I can imagine, I mean, all the things you do teaching and are, I mean, you have a full schedule when T comes and says, let's start a global movement. You said yes, <laughs> and you did it and you're doing it well. And you're creating a safe space for so many. I mean, it is just so needed and so important. So, you know, the world is just grateful on top of all you do as your plate runneth over, you're, you're still maintaining this. It's so, it couldn't be more important. So maybe let's kind of backtrack and talk about the monuments coming down. But what are your thoughts on, on the monuments coming down last summer and, and what should replace it or what should not replace it? You know, I find it really interesting, the need or the desire to save and preserve monuments. I think, you know, when the community responds that a particular monument needs to come down or when a monument is removed as a form of protest, that is really something to be listened to. I think, you know, there's often then a rush to fill that space with something new without actually generating the kind of conversation and the inquiry that needs to happen as to why a particular monument might have been removed in the first place. So the, the rush to uh, kind of jump over or skip over the historical structural racism or the way that the victors, you know, are the ones who tell history, right? Because that's a big part of it. Like our monuments, so many of the monuments um, in North America are dedicated to, to the victors, right? Whoever won the war, whoever had the most money to put up, you know, to build a sculpture of themselves and to basically tell their version of history as they wrote it. And so to recognize that those histories are steeped in racist, colonial, patriarchal expectations. And, you know, it's, it's a very particular gaze, right? So when the people show up and tear down a monument, then, you know, it's like people need to be paying attention to what's actually happening and why it's happening. Because, you know, these, these monuments are almost timeless. Like we are reinventing what people in the future will look back and see who we were as a community, who we were as a people. You know, these, these monuments represent our culture. Um, and it really is a lot of pressure on us, I think, living in this time <laughs> to figure out what those monuments look like. I mean, would you, how would you suggest having input from a community? Like what, what would it look like? What is your ideal process look like of rebuilding? I think it's not that much pressure, actually. I think the pressure has been taken off of us because people are tearing down monuments that represent rapists and colonizers. So I think the pressure has been taken off of us by like, hey, look, we're tearing this down because it doesn't need to be here. So instead, let's do this like cultural equity initiative of where we create this process of placemaking, right? And so I am fully believing in the execution and design of public spaces that incorporate the community and represent hope for the community that represents and promotes health and safety that people who are in North Oakland unhoused, pushed out by gentrification, they can go and they can see this Afro pic as a sign of hope that represents Black movement, Black power, and all power to all people. So I think it's not hard. I think the pressure has been taken off of us. And there are artists who have and are able to create monuments that incorporate placemaking. Um, as an abolitionist, I take 
mentorship from Ruthie Gilmore, who talks about abolitions is the is about presence. It's not about absence. So it's about building life affirming institutions. And if you're building life affirming institutions, that means that you are building with a mindset and idea to incorporate life affirming assets. I mean, it's so powerful, the power of art, to see a piece that represents you, that you're familiar with, that empowers you and inspires. I mean, whereas what is being torn down is a tool of the oppressor. I mean, it just is there to make people feel insecure and question themselves, whereas, you know, these pieces really do the opposite. Well, and I think also, you know, it's about, you know, how do we define power and what does power look like? And so, if you think about colonial oppression, you're talking about power over that is about dominating, right? And it's about discipline and punishment and forcing people to submit. And so when you think about how black women have, you know, coming from a marginalized position, from an oppressed position that you know, the kind of power that, that we are trying to generate is about empowering people, right? So how do we bring people in and co-create what it looks like to be powerful and to be empowered without diminishing someone else's power, you know, that there's actually space and there's room for all of us to, um, you know, to be like these, you know, alive, living, breathing um, people who are fulfilling, you know, we're all fulfilling our individual gifts and, and bringing our own resources uh, to the table and that there's space and there's room for everyone. So it's a really different way of thinking about, you know, what, uh, what power is and what it looks like. And, and so beautifully said, I mean, absolutely, get rid of any hierarchical, whatever nonsense, you know, and the power of representation. I mean, when a, when a young girl walks up to a monument and can see herself there and sees herself immortalized as a hero, I mean, that you can stand up taller, you have pride. I mean, it just is life-changing, life-affirming. I feel energized constantly by being in West Oakland and walking past my, my home, walking past Esther's Orbit Room on 7th Street. Every time I walk by the West Oakland Bar Station, I know what used to be there. I, my mother was a great documenter. So we have, I have pictures of West Oakland before 1970, before all of this gentrification. And I saw what existed before. So I'm always just constantly energized by the, the actual land and the place that I'm in and the people who are still creating culture. And I think one thing that I've recently learned is that whenever Black people get together, which I see a lot happen still in West Oakland, we are creating culture, right? Like if you look at other cultures, like Asian culture, Indian culture, um, African cultures, because they didn't have the severance of, of, of kinship from being taken from their homeland, they have a history of, of culture. And I noticed that what's so special about West Oakland is that I see Black people come together often. And when we're coming together, I never knew it, never had a name for it. But what I see happening is that we are creating culture that we didn't have. Well, and I would just add, you know, that it's a really, it's an active practice, you know, so, so understanding cultural continuity and finding ways to 
restore and repair and reclaim lineage, you know, that's, uh, I mean, it, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work for sure. But there's a way I think that, you know, one of the things that's so incredible about Oakland is the way that people come together and the way that community comes to, to together to support each other. And even, you know, I'm, I live in West Oakland uh, now. And so right down the street is the spot where Huey P. Newton was murdered, you know, but then right across the street from that is Jill Christina's house where she's got the women of the Black Panther Party mural going in and then Dana King's uh, bust that will be going in, you know, at the other end of the block on uh, Mandela. So these are, you know, women and people who are, who are showing up and reclaiming and rewriting history. So that becomes a really active, uh, you know, kind of position to, to take up. And, you know, part of why, like, we do the work that we're doing is so that we can, you know, really create a, a more accurate story, right? We can, we can create a more accurate history. And it's also, I think, I would say, you know, it's histories, plural, right? Because, you know, we all come from slightly different positions and lineages, but it's about how we come together and show up and really thinking about, you know, what does it mean for like the younger generation to be coming up? You know, how are they going to be growing up in this neighborhood and who are they going to be, you know, looking to and who are their heroes going to be? Because it's really necessary, you know, that, um, that we hold up you know, the, the leaders and the people that we have looked up to, you know, in my generation or in T's generation, but then always thinking about who else is coming up after us. I mean, I just keep thinking about this with the Black Panther Party um, and all of the work that they were doing in the 60s and the 70s and how that, you know, how we understand what the Black Panther Party was doing then is now like, so incredibly relevant and like finally getting some recognition for the work that they were trying to do, you know, 40, 50 years ago. So, you know, it's just, um, I mean, it's like, finally, you know, finally. And you're right. I mean, I, I've heard stories too about the, the women of the Black Panther Party carried the weight um, and are finally being acknowledged. Um, you know, through the work of Erica and Jill Christina and, you know, all these amazing people you've mentioned. Um, but it, it does, you know, it takes a village. <laughs> it takes a village. Yeah, you know, I mean, they, the power of activism is gathering, you know, the, the right to gather publicly. And the, the power of the oppressor is separating people and then feeding them information individually. You know, it's when people can get together and really brainstorm and connect is when movements happen. Um, in terms of art and activism, what is the role you see of art or the power of art in terms of, of activists and, and language too? I mean, I think art is its own language. Yeah, I think, you know, that's really one of the beautiful things that has come out of 2020 is that we really got to see how artists were showing up and uh, building connections, you know, I think more explicitly between art and activism. And so, you know, I, like so many, I mean, I, I, you know, the conversation for a while was all about like 
the pandemic was about taking a pause and you know being at home baking bread and stuff like that which is all really beautiful and wonderful um i know for myself and i know for t and for a lot of the women in our collective like we we didn't get a pause right so we were busy showing up and you know all kinds of platforms and and events and you know really supporting you know people out in the street and supporting protesters um, and really thinking about how art um, whether you know it was in our own practices or in a you know more visible kind of public forum but how images and objects like the things that we were you know making in our studios or you know whatever kind of images we were posting on Instagram and things that that those became opportunities to generate conversation and so that's really I think you know one of the key things I'm I've been identifying lately you know if you look around the Bay Area and you think about like all of the murals that went up downtown or you know even amongst you know for us as the black women the billboard that we did in Bayview and you know all of these ways that we were using our aesthetic orientation and our aesthetic concerns to then channel that into public dialogue and public conversation. Um, so that, you know, has been something that I think has just become, you know, even more clear to a lot of folks, maybe people out there who are questioning, you know, like, what does art matter in this particular moment? It's like, yeah, because we're the people that are putting words together, putting images together, showing up in the street and using our aesthetics to communicate our values and, you know, to create a vision of, you know, what things could be like, what things could look like. I'm really inspired by the abolitionists right now, um, because really, the, to me, that's about creating a whole new vision of how we can live and be in community together that isn't about disciplining and punishing each other. And there are folks who are envisioning and actively building a whole new way of organizing and being in community with each other that is actually about protecting each other and making sure that everyone has what they need and you know that like defunding the police isn't just defunding the police it's actually about redirecting those funds into communities and supporting people to have like the basic things that they need you know to be able to live and get out of bed and have breakfast and go to school or go to work or whatever is happening so I'm just, I'm deeply inspired by the abolitionists right now. I, I did, I did want to make a little bit of comment on that, that question about um, the purpose of art and how it relates to public art. I was thinking about the white gaze and uh, the positions of white people as this perpetual man character of black life and thought is something that we don't always get to see, which was the purpose of one of our, our black reactions, right? Which is, if we have the opportunity to see ourselves um, in, in, in our own art, like why would we ever need to see these other like art that does not have or consider or situate or place black women, black people, black culture at the forefront. So the, the importance I think of art being done by black people is that we are dissociating from that white gaze and then we no longer have this idea that white people are the audience. So that's the importance for me as far as Black art by Black people, by Black women, which I think relates to the importance of public art being done by Black people. I have recently been finding my identity through neon bending and I had the first 
show that I ever had. So I'm at this gallery in uh, Berkeley and there's this huge red neon sign eight feet wide that says Brianna Taylor. And at night it illuminates the entire block in, in Berkeley right across from um, UC Berkeley. So I ended up getting these emails from the people at the gallery saying, oh, well, maybe we could turn off the light at night because it's pretty bright. It could be a fire hazard. And so I was thinking, no, it's not a fire hazard because these wires are grounded and the premier place where I got the transformers have a built-in grounding. So it's double grounded. And I was thinking actually, you know, this coffee maker that you have downstairs is actually exuding more voltage than this whole sign, which is the amount of one light bulb. This experience of this piece representing this woman who was murdered in her home and they were trying to turn off her light and she's already dead. If you're not calling out the names of these people, how easy it is to forget them of that work that needs to be done and how easy it is to forget the ways in which she was murdered by police. But here it was, I internalized it and got so emotional didn't even understand why, but that I was seeing that they were trying to turn off this light because it was bothering people walking by. So I don't know how to like change the narrative or how people talk about black art, but I just see that turning the bright light of Breonna Taylor's name on bothers some people and how important that is to bother more people. Yeah, I think that, you know, that whole story about what happened with that piece, it's just, you know, that's like a microcosm of what we experience as Black women, you know, more broadly, and that we are too bright, we're too loud, um, we're too big, we take up too much space, like, you know, we're too angry, whatever it is, right? It's so often about being too much of whatever we're doing. And, you know, I think that that you know, looking at like, yeah, okay, well, so this bright red light is keeping you up at night. Like, yeah, okay. And so what happens? <laughs> what happens when you're up at night and you actually have to contend with the murder of a black woman in her own home, in her own bed while she's sleeping? You know, then like, what's the next step? What happens after that? And so, you know, like, I just, I really feel that it's like, yeah, more people should be bothered. More people should be uncomfortable, more people could be sleepless and actually be thinking about, you know, what they are going to do, you know, to, to solve the, the issues that we're facing as Black folks, right? Because this is a public health crisis. So if you think about it in that sense, it's like, yeah, that then becomes a perfect example of what art can do in a particular moment, right? It just like highlights and magnifies these issues that we're trying to figure out how to talk through with people. And I, I would just add to that also in terms of like specifics of how to actually shift that context of, you know, looking at Black folks or looking at Black art or, you know, what the Black aesthetic is, is that first of all, we need like more Black folks in our institutions or we need to be building more of our own institutions so that we're not dependent on 
a lot of white folks in museums who think that they're doing something good or they want to check off their diversity box or their racial equity, whatever, because like we're not here to just be lip service and to make y'all look good. If you actually want to support us, then that also requires a certain amount of, of trust and like literally handing over, like you want to have a program that's talking about, you know, what black women are doing, then like give us that space to do that. You know, we don't need it to be, um, you know, done in some particular way to suit your audience or to make your people feel good about their whiteness or whatever it might be. If you want us to show up and like do the work, then like, you know, actually let us do that. And we don't need for it to be like all polished and manipulated into something else. And that's part of it too, which I think sometimes, you know, folks out there, non-Black people who are curating work by black artists or writing about work by black artists but it's so often like getting polished and manipulated to then perpetuate a particular way of looking at black folks as opposed to just allowing us to speak for ourselves last year there were quite a few interviews and you know stories that that i contributed to in terms of publicity that we were receiving around the Maya Angelou monument. And I don't think I was ever actually quoted correctly, you know, and had to literally like fight over, that's actually not what I said. And here's what I said, because I wrote it down and I emailed it to you so that we wouldn't be in this situation, you know? So that's, you know, I think also at the core is that a, a lot of people don't, don't really want to give up some of that power, give up some of that control over what it all looks like in the end. My last question is just about the future. Where are we going? What projects do you have in the work? What, what can we get excited about? What can we look forward to? The future is, is full of Black women creating, making space as we do. And I think this movement is going to take over everything. See Black women, hear Black women, Trust Black women, love Black women, protect Black women, pay Black women. Collectives like Sea Black Women are pivotal in connecting communities and creating culture together. It has been such a humbling learning experience to be in conversation with all of these amazing artists, organizers, and thought leaders. Thank you to Sea Black Women for sharing their process and their insight with us. We are grateful for all of the important work that you do. Join me next Monday as I speak with artist Lava Thomas about the transformative power of art and storytelling. I'm Francesca D'Alessio, and I oversee public programs initiatives here at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, and I'm your host for this series. Please visit our website, deyoung.famsf.org backslash programs backslash local voices to find transcripts for this episode and to be sure to subscribe to the museum's email newsletters to learn all about what's going on here at the DeYoung.